Hallelujah. Everybody doing good this morning? Ready to get into the Word of God? Well, if you have your Bibles, open them up to the second chapter of Philippians. I'm going to be reading out of the New American Standard Bible uh, in much of the scriptures that I quote today. Uh, Paul is writing to the church at Philippi, the first church he founded in Europe. Among other things, he wrote to exhort them to unity and to warn them about false teachers. The verses we're going to look at this morning contain some of the most profound teachings on the Lord Jesus Christ in all the Bible. So let's take a look, starting at verse 3 in Philippians 2. Paul said, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We ask your Holy Spirit to open our eyes today and make your word come alive to us. Help us to see what changes we need to make in our lives. And we purpose to be doers of the word today and not just hearers only. Thank you for helping us. Thank you for transforming us into the image of your son. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Humility, which is one of the most important of Christian virtues is probably one of the least analyzed of all. The one standout book on the subject was written by Andrew Murray over a 100 years ago, and it's still a timeless classic on the subject. And I'll be pulling from portions of that book throughout this message. As we begin studying the subject of humility, I want us to look at the picture of our Lord as an example of selfless humility, actually the ultimate example found in our text. Paul starts out the second chapter of Philippians, encouraging the believers at Philippi to be united in spirit. This unity he's calling for is such that people are knit together in harmony, having the same desires, the same passions, the same ambitions. In other words, they're intent on one purpose, having the mind of Christ, seeing things as he would see them and responding as he would respond. Next, in Philippians 2, verse 3, Paul warns them to guard themselves against two of the greatest enemies of unity among the people of God, selfishness and empty conceit. Selfishness, or some translations say selfish ambition, refers to factionalism, rivalry, and partisanship. Think of the U.S. Congress if you want an example of what this looks like. (laughs) It speaks of the pride that prompts people to push for their own way. It's the desire to be number one at any cost. Andrew Murray calls this devilish pride. And that seems an appropriate description because that's exactly what got Lucifer kicked out of heaven. 
Empty conceit is the pursuit of personal glory. It speaks of pride or self-display. Whenever you find people who are interested in gathering a clique around themselves or in promoting their own self-interest, there you'll find the seeds of contention and strife. And I've got a little thread that is just floating around in front of my eyes that I had to pull that off. Forgive me. <laughs> Paul then gives them the remedy of, for selfishness and empty conceit by writing, With humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Well, the Greek word translated, translated humility of mind originally carried the meaning of contempt and scorn and the idea of being lowly and shabby. I think in many ways the world still views humility as a negative quality. But by the influence of the gospel, its meaning has been transformed for believers into a sign of godliness and love. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. This idea is foreign to the human mind, isn't it? Especially when everything in our society is geared toward making you think, it's all about you. Think of how many advertisements you hear daily that convey the message, you deserve home, you deserve. You deserve a break today. Take the vacation your family deserves. And here's a few more trite sayings making their way across the Internet. If you feel like you deserve better, it's because you do. Believe you deserve it, and the universe will serve it. Sometimes life doesn't give you what you want, not because you don't deserve it, but because you deserve more. And then you open your Bible and read that you to regard others as more important than the you who deserves so much. This requires mind renewal, doesn't it? Keep in mind, this does not mean we're to consider all others as superior to us, but rather as worthy of preferential treatment. And remember, Paul is talking to believers here about how to walk together with each other in unity. This is not something that will come about through any amount of self-effort, but only as we yield to the love of God within us. We see this idea of preferring others echoed by Paul in Romans 12.10. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another. And by Peter in 1 Peter 5.5, 5, Yes, all of you be submissive to one another, and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. It doesn't mean that we neglect our own needs above those of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul says in verse 4 of our text in Philippians 2, Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Proverbs 3.27 says, Do not withhold good from those who to whom it is due, when it is in your power to do it. So we take care of our needs, but also when it is within our power and ability to do good, we look out for the needs of our fellow believers. Amen? Continuing, I, I, you know, I just thought of a story along this line. There, there was a, a great man of God in the early 1900s that was uh, had a tremendous ministry in Africa, a large family, and his wife, uh, pretty, he was on traveling quite a bit around Africa and his wife was home with her with the family but there were a lot of needy um, natives in the area that would come to her for food and she would constantly give out and give out and give out and she neglected herself 
and ended up dying as a result of that. Um, so it's it's important we keep a balance here, is, is what I'm trying to say. Amen? Continuing with our text in Philippians 2, Paul borrowed from an early hymn of the church to show Christ as the ultimate example of selfless humility. In verse 5, he says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not require, regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. When emptying himself, the Son did not cease to be God. Though he had all the rights, privileges, and honors of deity, which he was worthy of and could never be disqualified from, his attitude was not to cling to those things or his position, but to be willing to give them up for a season. Think of the contrast between the first Adam and Jesus, the last Adam. The first Adam made an attempt to seize equality with God in the garden. The last Adam humbled himself, set aside his positional equality with God, and obediently accepted the role of a bondservant. And he did all this to redeem a world of lost humanity. Thank God. When Jesus was made in the likeness of men, he became more than God in a human body. He took on all the essential attributes of humanity. In the second chapter of Luke, we see him as a young boy subjecting himself to his earthly parents. We also see him increasing in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with man. In other words, he subjected himself to the normal process of human growth, intellectually, physically, spiritually, and socially. He operated in this world not as God, but as a righteous man full of the Holy Spirit. I think that's important for us to remember. He operated in this world not as God, but as a righteous man full of the Holy Spirit. If he had not humbled himself to that degree, he could never have said to us believers that the works that he did, we would do also. Instead, he'd have to say, now I'm God, so don't you even think of trying to do this. But thank God he said we could do even greater works than he did because he returned to the Father. Amen? Somebody said, well, what are the greater works? How about we just get the works that he did done? I don't know about you, but I've never seen anybody raised from the dead by praying for them. I haven't experienced that yet. I haven't walked on water yet. So I think until we get the basics done, then we can think about that. what are the greater works. Amen? Hallelujah. Philippians 2.8. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus put aside all personal rights and interests to ensure the welfare of others. Death by crucifixion was the cruelest, most excruciating and shameful form of execution, reserved only for criminals. Why was he not allowed to die a natural death? Why didn't he just live on to an old age and die? Would that have sufficed? Or why not die an accidental death? Why did he have to go through all of that? Because if he was going to redeem mankind from the curse of the law, he had to become accursed himself. Deuteronomy 21:23 says, He who is hanged on a tree is accursed of God. And that's where Galatians uh, tells us 
Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law because he became a curse for us. That's why he had to go to the cross. Andrew Murray writes, In death, Jesus gave the highest, the perfect proof of having given up his will to the will of God. In death, he gave up his self with its natural reluctance to drink the cup. He gave up the life he had in union with our human nature. If it had not been for his boundless humility, counting himself as nothing except as a servant to do and suffer the will of God, he never would have died. But thank God he did. Philippians 2.9, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. The previous verses of our text show what Jesus did. He set aside his own will and interests and humbled himself. Now we look at what God the Father has done. First of all, he exalts him. God gives Jesus back his glory. Remember the high priestly prayer Jesus prayed in John 17:5. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. The Father answers that prayer. Secondly, the Father gives him the name which is above every name. What does that mean? Think about it. He had the name of Jesus since his birth to Mary and throughout his earthly ministry. Was he given a new name by the Father? So what does that mean? He was given a name which is above every name. The Father gives that name, the name of Jesus, new significance by declaring that Jesus Christ is Lord which means he is sovereign ruler over all. If, if you look at Matthew, and this is not in my original scripture references, but it came to me when I was thinking about it earlier. In Matthew 28, um, verses 18 and 19, Jesus said, this is after he was resurrected. He says, all authority has been given unto me. So that's a confirmation of what the Father did when he gave him a name above all other names. And then he told us to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. So he delegated that authority to us. But that's another message altogether. Amen. So the Father gave his name new significance by declaring him Lord, sovereign ruler over all. And the day will come when the entire intelligent creation will either willingly or unwillingly bow the knee to him and declare him Lord. This includes the angels and the spirits of the redeemed in heaven, obedient believers and disobedient rebels on earth, the devil, demons, and lost humanity in hell. They will all acknowledge and affirm his lordship. So what is the lesson for us in these verses from Philippians? The lesson is that the way up is down. We should not exalt ourselves, but be servants of others that God may exalt us in due time. How do we do that? Humbling ourselves is a choice, just as exalting ourselves is a choice. Both have very different results. Jesus said in Matthew twenty-three twelve, Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. When you choose to humble yourself in due time, and that means it's never as soon as you'd like it to be, God will exalt you. 
Similarly, if you choose to exalt yourself by choosing your own way rather than God's, you will eventually be humbled. King David is a case in point. I have a new spirit-filled life study Bible at home that provides introductory material at the beginning of each uh, book. And the outline for Second Second Samuel describes chapter 1 through 10 as the triumphs of David. This includes his political, spiritual, and military triumphs. And then in chapter 11, David commits the sin of adultery with Bathsheba and the sin of murder. The outline describes this as the transgressions of David. And then the last chapters of the book, chapters 12 through 24, are described as the troubles of David. This describes the troubles in David's house and in his kingdom. During the period of David's triumphs, we see his humility before the Lord recorded in 1 Chronicles 17, 16. It says, Then David the king went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord, God, and what is my house, that you have brought me thus far? But after his sin with Bathsheba, of which he only repented when confronted by Nathan the prophet, David's glory and fame tragically fade, never to be the same again. A more modern-day example can be found in another book on humility written by Peter Wagner. He writes about the wave of evangelism that swept into the church after World War II during the late 40s and early 50s. But there was a distinct wall of separation between evangelicals and Pentecostals. He said the two men who became best known for hearing what the Spirit of God was saying and for taking leadership of the new movement of evangelism were Billy Graham of the Evangelicals and William Branham of the Pentecostals. For nearly two decades, Branham's meetings were much larger than Graham's. He could prophesy with pinpoint accuracy people's names, addresses, and other personal information. I heard a firsthand account of this from a man I had the privilege of knowing and writing about. You've heard me speak of Paul Hartman, uh, who, along with his wife, were missionaries in Cuba uh, during the Castro Revolution. In 1951, uh, actually they served from 1945 to 1960. In 1951, Paul was experiencing severe pain in his abdomen. The Cuban doctors removed his appendix, but that didn't help. Finally, he and his family took a temporary leave from the field and returned to their hometown of Des Moines, Iowa, where William Brannan happened to be finishing a crusade in the city auditorium. And on the final day of the crusade, Paul was in so much pain, he spent the day in bed, while his wife, Levon, went to the auditorium to get a prayer card for Paul for the afternoon service. So each card had a number on it, and Branham's practice was he was always seeking the leading of the Spirit of God as to even to what numbers to call when it was time to, to pray for people. So before Paul went to the afternoon service, he visited his family, doctor, and the doctor told Paul he had a perforated gastric ulcer, which, left, if left untreated, would be life-threatening. The doctor gave Paul some medicine, which uh, he actually never ended up taking, and you'll understand why. And Paul went home to rest before going to the afternoon Branham meeting. When Paul met up with his wife, she gave him his prayer card, which had the number 35 on it. And when Branham was ready to pray for the sick, he said, Let's begin with number 35. Paul raced up to the stage 
And Branham looked at him and said, I perceive you are a missionary. I see water lapping around your feet. But I don't know if you're coming or going or coming back. I see you in a doctor's office. You've been suffering a long time. But the doctor today told you that you have a perforated gastric ulcer. That's pretty precise. (laughs) Paul's wife heard the doctor's report before Paul had a chance to even tell her. Branham said, I don't have to pray for you because God has already healed you. After that day, Paul never experienced any more abdominal pain in the abdomen. (laughs) And he lived into his mid-80s. I told you all that to give you a sense of how, how unusually Branham was used of God. After Branham's meetings, there would be piles of crutches, wheelchairs left behind by people who had been healed in his ministry. None of those things happened in Billy Graham's meetings. Wagner, the Peter Wagner states of this time in the 1940s and 50s that message for message, many more people found the road to heaven through Branham than through Graham. Wagner points out that when we moved into the 21st century, several periodicals published lists of the most influential people of the previous century. Billy Graham's name was on every list. William Branham's name was on none. He is all but forgotten by most of the world. So what happened? Like King David, William Branham started out as a very humble servant of God, and God exalted him. If you watch any YouTube videos of his ministry during this time, you can see he was unpretentious, very humble man. Gordon Lindsay, who started Christ for the Nation's Bible School, used to introduce Branham before he would speak. His introduction was very low-key, not drawing attention to the man, but to what God was doing through Branham. Once when Lindsay was away, the man who replaced him to introduce Branham gave very extravagant praise about Branham to the crowd. Branham liked it so much that when Lindsay returned, Branham told him he was going to have the other man introduce him from now on. And around this time, Branham, who was also an uneducated man, decided he wanted to teach rather than preach. Lindsay and others strongly advised him to stay within his calling, but he refused. It was only a matter of time before Branham started getting off theologically and his ministry began to wane. He ended up dying from a car accident in 1965. Billy Graham, on the other hand, maintained his humility throughout his ministry. The back cover of his autobiography, which he wrote more than 50, after more than 50 years in ministry, reads like King David's speech recorded in First Chronicles. I'm going to read it to you. Billy Graham said, I've often said that the first thing I'm going to do when I get to heaven is to ask, why me, Lord? Why did you choose a farm boy from North Carolina to preach to so many people? to have such a wonderful team of associates and have a part in what you were doing in the latter half of the 20th century. I have thought about that question a great deal, but I know also that only God knows the answer. Andrew Murray wrote that the devilish devilish pride seeks only itself. Pride is defined as a high or inordinate opinion of one's own dignity, importance, merit, or superiority. It includes arrogance, haughtiness, conceit, and vanity. The road to arrogant, ungodly pride is a bad road to take. How do you know if you're traveling on this road? Here's a few of the signposts. Yearning for praise from others. 
When you allow yourself to receive an emotional high from praise, it can be addictive. Keeping score of people's faults or shortcomings to make you feel superior to them. Rejoicing in others' failures and resenting others' successes. You know, our nation's economy is based on competition. But what may be good for a free enterprise system is disastrous for the church. I'll tell you another story. Uh, several years back, my wife and I headed up the music ministry for a large church. And we would rehearse the worship band and singers on Saturday night. First half of the rehearsal, I would work with the band in the uh, auditorium, and my wife would work with the singers in the choir room. And she had the choir room door open this particular night when she was rehearsing the singers, and she saw a man coming down the hall. Now, nothing else was going on in the church on Saturday night other than our praise and worship rehearsal. So she was looking to see who this man was, and as he got closer, she recognized him as being a pastor of a very prominent church in the Tampa Bay area. So she went out and introduced herself, and she said, is there anything I can help you with? And this was his response. He says, no, I'm just checking out the competition. When she told me that, it just, boy, that just settled. I thought, is this is this what this is all about? Are we competing with one another? And it just stuck in my head. Well, this man's church continued to grow. At its heyday, it was the seventh largest church in the country, uh, about 20,000 people in attendance. And uh, But eventually, what did we say? He who exalts himself will be humbled. His marriage ended up in divorce. Uh, the church went into foreclosure. The church no longer exists anymore. And uh, as far as I know, this man is no longer in ministry. And uh, you think 20,000 people, how many lives were affected by that fallout? So it's it's pretty sobering. Scripture is true. And when you see real-life examples of it, it, it seems to hit home a little bit more poignantly. So how do we know if we're traveling on the road to humility? Here are a few signposts for this road. You're willing to submit to those who are in authority over you. Hebrews 13:17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. <clears throat> Secondly, you accept well-deserved praise with dignity, but you reject self-serving, insincere flattery. Refusing to accept legitimate praise is not a sign of humility, but it can be a sign of insecurity or a facade for appearing super spiritually. It's okay to graciously thank people who commend you. Um, it's also a good practice to thank God afterwards for his help because without it, you can do nothing of any eternal value. Amen? And thirdly, you're willing to let others get credit for something that you had a part in. Boy, that can be tough on the flesh. But we need to be tough on our flesh, don't we? I want to close with another story from Billy Graham's autobiography, Just As I Am. This story exemplifies a man walking in biblical humility better than any I can think of. And the fact that it actually happened makes it all the more an effective illustration. The story takes place in 1972 in Nagaland, which is a state in India. Nagaland at the time had one of the largest concentrations of Christians in India. And Billy Graham's crusade team was there to help celebrate the 100th anniversary of Baptist ministries coming to Nagaland. So this story begins at a dinner 
that a government official, think about it, a government official hosting a dinner for a minister? That's what it was. And he had arranged this dinner for Billy Graham and some of his team. Now, this is Billy Graham talking in this, uh, this account that I'm reading. At that dinner, the schedule for the next day was discussed. We have early morning Bible studies, the government official said. Of course, we would like you to preside, but because you have several other things during that day, if you want to send one of your associates, we'll accept that. Well, maybe Charlie or Cliff could take that meeting, I replied. By the way, how many people do you expect? About 100,000, the government minister said without hesitation. Well, I believe I'll take that meeting after all, Billy Graham managed to say. When Charlie, Cliff, and I were shown to our quarters in the government house, we were introduced to Nihuli. He was the person who would handle our baggage, make us tea, and do whatever else needed doing. He took our shoes to wipe the mud off of them. We can do that, I told him. No, please let me, he said. As he was brushing the shoes, I asked him about the early morning service. I especially wanted to know, I said, who would be teaching the Bible before I arrived. He didn't reply. When I pressed him further, he admitted that it was he who would be teaching the Bible to that huge crowd. The man cleaning my shoes had just taught me a lesson on the servant attitude and spirit of ministry so often adopted by Christ himself. I have never forgotten it, he said. Praise God. That story stands out to me as such a stark contrast to the self-serving rock star personalities of some of today's ministers of the gospel. Is it any wonder why the church is not impacting our world more profoundly than it is? Andrew Murray said, until a humility which will rest in nothing less than the death of self, which gives up all the honor of men as Jesus did, to seek the honor that comes from God alone, which absolutely makes and counts itself nothing, that God may be all, that the Lord alone may be exalted, until such a humility be what we seek in Christ above our chief joy and welcome at any price. There is very little hope of a religion that will conquer the world. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning knowing like young King David that there is nothing in our human lineage that might command your esteem or claim for us the high privilege of being called your children. And yet, by your great mercy, you have brought us into your family through the precious blood of Jesus. And you have told us through your prophet Micah that you require us to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before you. We ask you to forgive us this morning for the times we've neglected to do these things. And we choose today to walk in humility before you and before your church. We ask you for the grace to do this. And as we draw closer to you, help us cast aside all self-sufficiency and devilish pride and put our trust completely in you and in your word. In Jesus' name, amen.